Hello and welcome to the first official episode of Tea and Educate, a light-hearted discussion-based podcast made with teachers for teachers. So grab a cuppa, sit back and relax as we delve into a new slice of education chit-chat with every show. In this episode, we talk to Jack Martin, Director of Sport at an all-boys comprehensive school in Surrey, who has an inspirational story to tell. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Teen Educate, Mr. Martin. How are you today? Yeah, very good. Very good. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Okay, so we'll start things off with a few questions that will help give us a snapshot of you as a teacher. First of all, good. why did you decide to become a teacher and what was your key motivation? Well, obviously, key motivation was that when I, whilst I was at school, sort of the people that I was the closest to were my PE teachers. Obviously, because of playing so much sport, I spent a lot of time with the PE department. Um, so I always sort of go, went throughout school, sort of liking them, uh, having a lot of respect for them and always thinking that if my sort of career in sport didn't work out, that it was sort of a, a really good compromise, like being able to stay within the sporting environment, being able to coach sort of the next generation through and still every day get up and be around sport. It's, it, that was literally my primary focus of what I wanted to spend the rest of my life doing something to do with sport so yeah Mr Waldron my PE teacher at school was probably my my biggest my biggest focus of why I wanted to come into being a PE teacher. Shout out to Mr Waldron. Mr Waldron legend. (laughs) (laughs) What has been your proudest moment so far and why? Probably the proudest moment is when we competed rugby wise on like a national level so our first team got to the final of the national bowl last year which was massive so from the quarterfinals on, we're the only sort of state school left in our, in our area of the competition. So then to be able to give those lads an opportunity to go and um, represent the school at a, a premiership stadium on such a big scale, be able to take seven coach loads of students to the ground to watch them. Result didn't go great, but the opportunity <laughs> for the boys was, um, was superb and they were just, they absolutely loved it. So yeah, very, very proud. To, yeah, for the school to sort of compete on a national level. Yeah, that was amazing. What has been the most valuable lesson that you've learned as a teacher? For me, I think it's uh, been realistic. Um, you can have these the big dreams, but it's then being realistic to, to realise what, what is achievable, to set those goals that you can actually achieve. Otherwise, it's just becomes quite disheartening and you've got an end goal that you're striving to get to. But feasibility of getting there is there isn't any so yeah I think realism yeah I remember when I became head of department I wrote a five-year plan looking back at that plan (laughs) like a couple of years down the line I wanted my own allotment space I wanted a second food room built never gonna happen Megan never gonna happen yeah yeah you wanted your own meat on site (laughs) I I, I wanted a vegetable patch I wanted an allotment so we could grow our own food Yeah, yeah, good luck. Yeah, that, that <laughs> didn't quite go to plan. Right, so moving on to the main part. So today we're here to talk about something that is very important to the both of us, mental health. Um, and given the all-boys setting that you work in, and obviously your own gender, we'll be looking mm-hmm. at male mental health in particular. I really wanted to use this episode as a way to share your story because to me it's such a powerful show of resilience and determination but it also demonstrates how it's really important to appreciate and work on both physical and mental health when we're faced with challenges. They do go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. 
So if we start off by going straight in there, do you want to explain what happened to you physically a few years ago? Sure. Um, so, yeah, four, just over four years ago when I was, I was fit, training, was training for a marathon, um, so I was running a lot. So I woke up, literally just woke up one morning and my shins hurt, so I thought I might have shin splints. So I went into work, talked throughout the day and sort of the pain was traveling up my legs and into my hips. So at the end of, at the end of teaching up at Priest Hill, our playing field, went to Ernie and the guy said I might have slipped a disc or uh, something along those lines, which for me, I didn't really sit quite right because my pain threshold was pretty high and um, I was, it was hurting an awful lot. But anyway, I took all the painkillers that you gave me and then went home. Um, and then about half seven, eight o'clock, sort of my right foot just sort of fell off basically. Couldn't move it, couldn't feel it. It was just like drooping. And I thought, oh, maybe I'd taken too many of the painkillers. So went to sleep, woke up at about 12. The duvet was like excruciating, lying on top of my, on top of my legs. So Hannah, my girlfriend, we called the ambulance and they sort of, deliberated whether to send send someone over but they did um and by the time they got over they tried to get me out of the bed and my right my whole right leg was not working i couldn't feel it couldn't use it got me got me into hospital i waited in uh, a and e for a while yeah but by that time my left leg had then gone numb as well couldn't feel it couldn't use it they uh, stayed a couple of nights there in epsom hospital uh, where there was a specialist dr hart who moved me to St George's because that's where he his practice was so moved to St George's stayed there for sort of four weeks while they did all manner of things to work out what was going on and tried to help me out but yeah they diagnosed me there with having something called uh, neuromyelitis optica so it's just like an immune immune disorder so my immune system had just gone mad basically Um, and they created lots of swelling one bit in particular, L1, so sort of around your belly button on your spine. It just completely crushed my, my spinal cord. Uh, so no messages were getting from my brain, obviously, further past sort of belly button down. Stayed, stayed in St. George's for about a month. I was very lucky, very fortunate that one of my good mates, his mum, was pretty high up at St. George's. So I got a private room. I was very, very, very fortunate that I had people come and visit me every single day family, friends. I didn't have one day actually in the whole time where I didn't have a visitor come and come and see me. New St. George's were brilliant, had lots of the treatment at St. George's, if you like, to try and get rid of the swelling, which they did. But I left there as what they call was a complete injury. So I had complete paralysis um, and they gave me a 5% chance that it would ever, ever come back to life. So I went to Stanmore to a rehab sort of it's called the Royal National Orthopaedic Hospital, um, where I received sort of physiotherapy every single day. And yeah, it was an amazing place in that it was pretty old. The resources weren't super, but the, uh, the team that they've, of clinicians they had there were absolutely amazing. So yeah, stayed there for four, three months, maybe. Slowly started getting a little bit more movement. Um, started in my right big toe. I remember just lying in the bed and just being able to like wiggle my toe and I thought it was the best thing ever. Got myself standing up, sort of aided, like strapped into machines to, to get me standing up. And then, yeah, I 
I left Stanmore in sort of supports in my legs and with double crutches. So yeah, left there and then came home and spent, yeah, sort of that summer going to physio every day. I was very fortunate that my parents financially were able to pay for me to go private to see a physio every single day. They obviously knew that I was pretty pretty determined to get better. I wanted to be able to walk again. I wanted to be able to, what I saw was a quality of life that went associated with being able to walk and um, not being in a wheelchair, etc. That Yeah, so they gave me the every, every opportunity I possibly could. And super lucky that friends, family were incredible throughout the entire process. So yeah, and then I went back to, went back to school in September. Went back in on double crutches, went back in to start my job as head of PE. And again, the school was fantastic. They let me leave as often as I wanted to go to physio. The kids at the school were fantastic. Every kid would come to the office before before the lesson, see if I needed a hand, taking anything down to the classroom. Made it actually possible to go back to work. So yeah, and then since that day on, really, I've, I still see a physio pretty regularly, sort of once a week, once every two weeks to, to make sure I'm still progressing. Still got a lot of nerve damage. I can't run. I'm never able to play sort of sport per se, but I play a lot of golf now. And yeah, I've got a great standard of life. Yeah, so that's the... That's what happened, really. And now we're now we, as we are, try, still trying to recover and do what we can. Hearing your story literally gives, like, it makes me go cold. It makes me go tingly. <laughs> but one of the things I do remember from your recovery is how excited you were when you did get your feeling. It did start to come back. I remember coming to see you and you were in a wheelchair, but you were able to start kicking people. <laughs> yeah. so you were like, hey, watch this and just kicked me. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Uh, was... <laughs> Glad you're getting better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was um, it was difficult, and I think it was really tough, like being told. I was, I remember being down, really down one day, but I was progressing like that. I was the feeling was coming back, and my my doctor at the time, Anton, he sort of said, Jack, you've got to stop beating yourself up. Like they they literally gave you five percent chance of ever walking again and ever having any movement, and you're already like showing signs that you're gonna make progress. And I think that was any anything from then on was like a, a massive deal. Even I remember my auntie spraying my foot with like a cold spray and my foot like was in shock. And I just <laughs> thought it was amazing because it was actually moving. I had no control over it, but it, obviously <laughs> there was something working there. Yeah. It gave me every bit of hope that there was some some nerves still working. So when it first happened and when you were in hospital and they were trying to work out what was wrong initially, what went through your head? Initially, I'd, I took no uh, regard to how serious it was. I didn't really ever let myself come to terms with what had actually happened. I was just ill and I was going to get better. Even when I was in St. George's, there were down days, of course, where I was lying in bed and you couldn't get out of bed. You have to wait for a nurse to come and get you into your wheelchair, etc. Yeah, they were, they were really, they were difficult. And at the time I was in a very new relationship and I'd, I just hated the fact that I could be a burden um, to anyone, to my family, to my friends. To, even when friends came up to see me, they had to, I don't know, see me in a wheelchair and make sure I was okay and everything like that. But yeah, it wasn't until a little bit later down the line that reality sort of maybe kicked in of what, what life could be like if I was, was going to spend it in a wheelchair. But yeah, that took, a, that took a long time actually for me to get my head around what could, what could happen and how I could sort of deal with it if that was going to be the case. 
and yeah, it was it was tough. And I'm very much a character that I, I really don't like failure. And in my mind, anything less than where I am getting up and walking was failing. But it's quite difficult to sort of take it that it might not be in my control and that it wouldn't be a failure if I didn't walk again because it, there's nothing I could have done. So, yeah, that was the hardest thing, acting that I might fail at something. Um, even though I've given it 100%, that 100% might not be good enough, which was quite difficult to tum- come to terms with that at times, for sure. Because you were just being hard on yourself. Yeah, yeah. And people, I think people were getting cross. Friends were getting cross with me. Family were getting cross. Just saying, just give yourself a break. Like, you're doing everything you possibly can. Take it as it is. Obviously, you were incredibly driven and we only ever, Mm. I think we all saw you as being incredibly determined. We Mm. saw that you were a fighter and we knew that this wasn't going to, you weren't going to let it beat you. You were going to walk again and your mental strength to all of us was just amazing. But how did it all affect your mental health and how did you seek help or when did you see it was time to seek help with your mental health? Um. Yeah, I was I was super good at putting on a big front and making out as if it was all fun and games and I was cool with it all and, and I was fine. But it just got to there, definitely got to a stage where it just felt like everything was too much. Um, it felt like a bit defeated and deflated and a feeling that I'd never felt like that before. A feeling that I didn't want to leave the house. I didn't want to, didn't want to take on any challenges in case I failed. And it became very easy to sit at home and not want to leave the house in case something happened, which was really unlike me. And I was very, yeah, just very negative in some of my approaches. And I'm sure that's because in my mind, I had failed in that initially they said it's two years afterwards, anything after two years and you're not getting anything more. So when that sort of came around, I felt that I'd, I'd really failed. I needed to seek support and I didn't feel I could do it initially by asking my friends and family purely because they'd seen me as this strong person I didn't want to let that guard down I went someone very neutral someone who didn't know me someone who I could I could just talk to and be and be honest to and not have to put up any sort of front about what I was feeling whether that was terrible yeah, like really negative feelings of, against myself that I would never want to tell you on it, anyone who knew me um, at the time that I was having those feelings. I went to a counsellor and they sort of, to be honest, I think for the first five sessions, I just spoke for five hours and <laughs> she didn't get a word in edgeways. But all these emotions, all these feelings that I'd obviously just backed up, I just got off my chest. And to be honest, the counsellor didn't, didn't say anything revelationary at all just let me talk about what I was thinking and how I was feeling. Yeah, and that was the first time that I'd ever had any form of sort of dealings with mental health. I'd always thought that I would be able to beat anything myself and not have to ask, not have to ask anyone to, to help me. But yeah, I, I just knew that I would, had reached the road where I couldn't, yeah, I couldn't get past where I was without someone helping me really, mentally. And how long did that go on for? And do you dip in and out of it now still at all? Um, it lasts, so the mental health, maybe, I don't know, two, three, four months in that I went to a counsellor for, but it goes on all the time. 
they gave me sort of the confidence that I can speak to my friends and family in that if when I am feeling slightly down or that it's not a dent on anyone's ego, my ego, to have to say to someone that I'm feeling rubbish, this is why I'm feeling rubbish, I will get over it, but I need to get it off my chest. Yeah. Um, and yeah, 100% now, I speak to mates very closely about feelings that are, that are happening. And it's amazing how when I open up about things, out of my friends that come back to me and say, oh yeah, I'm feeling the same. And they open up about their sort of feelings and issues they've got about themselves too. So yeah, I don't think it will ever be something that I won't ever talk about. I think it's embedded in me that it's a good thing. You go to the gym if you're feeling weak, you have to look after your mental health too. If you're feeling weak in your mental health, you've got to do something about it. And for me, that was seeing professional advice first and then friends, family that you need to talk about it. And I do, I do regularly. Which is really good. That's a really good process to have been through. Mm. For me, one of the most upsetting things to watch really with your story was knowing that you're a sportsman, a PE teacher, that you'd just been promoted to head of PE and you had this new step in your career ahead of you. I guess my questions are, how has what happened firstly impacted your passion for sport? And then how has it also affected your roles as a head of faculty and as a PE teacher? So passion for sport is still, I still love it. And I actually think I took for granted how easy sport was when I was like fully bodied, if you like, and everything came quite naturally. Um, so actually, I think it's given me a bigger scope for sport to see what some people, why would some people not want to get involved in it? Because they're not very good at it or they find it difficult. So trying to find ways that, I don't know, to make it more accessible to everybody. Yeah, that like my passion is, is more so now than it ever has been because i've realized like the benefit of being active um and how much that does help me mentally it helped me like not being able to exercise was awful so i would never want anyone to go through to go through that and feel that they couldn't take part in a sport because they couldn't or they can't so yeah i think my breadth of like the benefits of p is sort of become a lot bigger since it all happened and I think like, as a head of faculty, that's like the breadth of curriculum has to reflect that. Like It has to be accessible for everyone. If you love sport, but you're maybe not naturally that talented, it doesn't mean you shouldn't be able to take part in it. So being able to have C, D teams, social teams, it should never be taken away from anyone just because of the, your ability. Everyone should have the, the opportunity to take part with that, for sure, in anything. Um, I don't know if you watched it, I don't know, it was on the other day, but Prince William was recently involved in a documentary with a number of professional footballers discussing how Mm. football can be used as a way to get men to open up about their mental health. How do you think sport can be used to break the stigma that surrounds mental health, particularly for men and teenage boys? And is this something you consider in your role as a PE teacher? Yeah, I mean, it's role models, isn't it? Like the professional game, any sport you see young men and women watching sport and idolizing these these people so they've got to be honest being a professional sportsman comes with a a huge amount of anxieties and pressures and they do feel that it is okay to say that they do feel these pressures and they do have down days yeah and i think it's got to be just accepted in the media it's not seen as a a negative it's seen as actually a strength that someone's speaking out about their mental health and that is all part of it. If you're someone's role model, you're not just a role model because you're a good footballer. 
or a good rugby player, etc. You're a good role model because you're a good person and you can sort of look up to them in more than, more than just one way that they can play the sport. You've got to be a well-rounded person, I think. And how do you build that into your teaching? I think I'm very honest. I'm very, very honest when I'm teaching. If I've got opinions, I'm, I'm vocal with them and I'm very, I really push them to have their opinions um, and be able to talk about it, in a, obviously in a mature way. But I think you've got to, I think you've got to have that respect for each other in the classroom that if there's an element of the course that needs more time to be spoken about because it's of a passion of the class, then that needs to be, that needs to take the time and doing it. It does it can't just be as regimented. Definitely pushed the faculty to spend more time having conversations and discussions in class about issues that are going on and that everyone's entitled to their own own opinion. Definitely I've breadth and like my way in which I teach I'm nowhere near as regimented. I like talking to them about it and I'm very honest. And it's amazing how many of them ask your opinion and ask you what you think about situations and why you think that. Um, and as educators we should be we should be able to do that and we should be able to yeah to help them have their opinions and to develop as people, right? Yeah. Would you say your experience has altered how you have those conversations with students about their mental health? Yeah, because I think I'm very open about my mental health and I think that encourages them to talk about it and they see, like I did, Mr. Walgen saw him as a role model um, and if they see you happy to talk about it, then I think they're really happy to talk about it. If anything, I think my relationships with students have become stronger because they respect that you found it difficult you did something about it and you've come out stronger the other side and to be honest without having had those sort of mental health issues would I have spent the time talking about it in class no because I didn't have that experience and I didn't know the importance of it whereas now I know that I'm happy to talk about it and the amount of positive discussions that have come about from it in classes out of nowhere since then has been remarkable and I think that's a really big thing considering that you work in an all-boys setting and mm. there's often a stigma more around boys speaking out. But having that role Definitely. model and having that person that it, it is relatable, isn't it? You know what it's like. So them knowing that you know what it's like makes it easier for them to express how they're feeling. Yeah, absolutely. And I think because they see you as head of PE, et cetera, et cetera, you're meant to be the PE teachers are notoriously like cool, if you like, that you're talking about it. That's such a big thing for them to see, that you're happy to show that you have a perceived weakness and that you've done something about it. And if we go back to earlier, you said you hate failure and you, mm. you hate failing. How do you see failure now and how do you talk to students about failure? Oh, yeah, I hated the idea of failure and I hated that I could put everything into something and not get the result that I wanted. But now I, I actually quite thrive that you can not achieve something even though you've given 100% but given that 100% is enough beforehand I wouldn't have I wouldn't have taken that as a as, a, as, an, as an excuse that I gave it everything and it didn't and nothing came of it whereas knowing that I have given everything I could have done I've become stronger for it I might not be able to run around but I'm definitely a better person from it it's just changed my my outlook of not being so like narrow-minded that actually failure would have been me coming out of this not being able to walk not having learned from this experience but I've actually learned a huge amount that I probably 
if I would have come out of hospital in a month and been back to normal, I would never have learnt those. Yeah. Um, so there's actually a, more to take from it. That it's a harder road. I've definitely learnt more because I had to work harder. And it's definitely those knockbacks when you do have failures or you do have things that don't quite go to mm. plan that build your resilience and it, it does make you a stronger person. Yeah, so much more appreciative of what you have got. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, how do you reckon we can squash this man-up mentality? It's a term that boys hear, it's a term that girls also get yeah. told. Like, How do you think we can actually squash that within society? It's difficult, and I think the more that the role models in the public eye are open to it and are talking about it, it is going to sort of, that is going to die out that mentality. And I think it is. I think the more that people are talking about it, the more that man up mentality, it can't, that can't go on. Like we look after our physical health, mental health is as if not more important when you're looking at health as a, as a whole thing. If your mental health isn't right, everything's going to fall back from it. But again, for me, it's just role models and people being open-minded. And how do you think that's challenged by certain celebrities calling the generation that are more open to talking about their feelings and mental health, snowflakes? How do you feel about that term? Yeah, it's not something you like to be referred to really, is it a snowflake? But at some time, at some stage in that individual's life, they will, or someone in their life, close to them, will experience some mental health and then they'll realise the importance of it. I think it's very difficult to explain to people who haven't seen mental health close to them what the effects of mental health are and what it can do to you. Because until you've witnessed it, I just don't think you see how severe it is. And I really think the more stories, positive stories you can get on on them in the media, the better that that will be and how people have overcome it the more it's going to have like a big, a big impact in society. It's difficult. I mean, before I had mental health, would I? No, I wouldn't have called it snowflakes, but I wouldn't have known this, how severe mental health could be. Like being in hospital with people who had severe, severe mental health, knowing that they're never going to talk again. Mm. Like until you've seen that firsthand and seen the impact it has on their family themselves. It's very difficult to answer back to these narrow-minded people that think that mental health isn't real. don't know. I think, yeah, the most positive stories you can get in the media. The media have got such a big job to do, in my opinion. Yeah. What would you say is the key things, the biggest thing that you've learned about yourself from this experience? How strong I am and how determined that I can be to, to achieve something. I think before this, I was very much... I would always see the negative in myself. If I did 99 things well and one thing wrong, I would always focus on that one thing wrong. But even on that one thing wrong, I wouldn't have looked at the impact that had elsewhere. I just got that wrong. Whereas I think now I'm, yeah, I'm a lot more appreciative of myself and the characteristics that I've got in being a good person. The fact that I spent four months in hospital and didn't spend one evening without a friend or a family coming to see me sort of makes you take yourself out of like the rat race of day to day and look at the bigger picture of what's actually going on. And yeah, everyone's got things that they change about themselves, but you've also got a million things that are amazing about yourselves. If you're willing to look at, look at them, if you're willing to see what's good, then everyone's got tons of good stuff about them. Yeah, and you, you yeah. are so loved, Jack. So I'm really glad that <laughs> that is a realisation that you came to. 
Before we finish, let's talk about what's next for you. So in September, you're going to be moving on to a new school, uh, but yeah. within the trust that you currently work, congratulations. Obviously, your school has played a big part in your life. Not only have you worked your way <laughs> up there, you've recovered from your illness, but you also went to the school, somehow managed Indeed. to be crowned head boy and have your name Year permanently early. etched. All right, show <laughs> off. Your name permanently <laughs> etched into the wall of a school hall. How do you feel about moving on at a time where you can't have a proper send-off, you can't have real closure? It's an end of an era, but you're just kind of going to sneak off. Just drift off. That's, that's me, though. Just go on to the next. <laughs> yeah, just go on, quickly go on. I've done the head of house, like the pastoral side of it, and I've done uh, the curriculum side of it. I really think from going through maybe potentially what I've gone through, that my real passion is down like the pastoral sort of route. I really enjoy that aspect of it. The new challenge is more in the di different environments what I'm used to and hopefully more pastorally driven because that's why I went into, into education, I think, to make a difference. And the rewards you get from pastoral support for me is, is so rewarding. So I'm looking forward to that next year, having more with the pastoral support in schools. And with regards to a send-off, I'm sure I'll meet the people that I would like to meet for beers as and when. When we can. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So what's your longer-term goal? What's the dream? Yeah, there's a couple of things I'm working with about sport for underprivileged, underprivileged students in the trust. Only very, very early days about how we can ensure as a trust that every student has the same uh, access um, whether it be to uh, sport, whether it be to arts, music, um, whether it be to obviously education as well. As a trust, what can we do? So if a, if a student wants to learn how to play rugby, but they can't afford to join a rugby club, what's in place to help them? What's in place to help a musician who wants to learn how to play the drums? That's the biggest picture for me that I would love to have a legacy that you've instigated something in the trust that every student, you know, every student had access to whatever extracurricular they wanted to take part in and disability or race or socioeconomic status isn't a barrier. But again, that's very, very early days. That would be the big dream. And that's why I think my pastoral support is something that I'm really interested in because that's, that's basically what that is, isn't it? making sure everyone's happy and grow up to be a loving person. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> You're such a big softie now. Look at you. <laughs> One final and very important question before we finish. If you were a cake, what would you be and why? I think I would be... Oh, I love cake too. Um, <laughs> I'll go for something like I quite like a Victoria sponge cake because yeah, yeah I deep. got called boring uh, when I said that. No, that's a great cake. Do I have to explain why? Yeah. Why, why would you why? be a Victoria sponge? Yeah. Because why? I like the look of it that you've got. <laughs> no, that you've got like a middle layer that is the best layer. So you have to work hard to get to that middle layer. And then you get like cream and the jam. And that's like the best bit, right? But you've got to work hard to get to that layer. And I think okay, that's the same with me. sounds like a massive slice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm, of course. That's what it is, right? <laughs> yeah. 
yeah I think that's why I think that's why I like it to a sponge <laughs> uh, well thank you so much Jack no that problems is, that is a wrap wow what an episode thank you for listening and thank you so much to Jack for sharing your story a story that reminds us that whatever happens you can find a way through of support resilience and determination even if things look different when you make it out the other side if you like what you hear please follow us on Twitter Podbean and Spotify and share us far and wide We'll be back soon for another slice of tea and educate. cake.